Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. This episode is sponsored by Near. Money is changing. So where do we go from here? Through high-profile interviews and thought-provoking analysis, join Michael Casey and Sheila Warren for the Money Reimagined podcast as they explore the connection between finance, human culture, and our increasingly digital lives. And just a reminder, Coindesk is a news source and does not provide investment advice. And now, here's Sheila Warren. Hello, and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. It's election season here in the United States, and as we approach the midterms, politicians and voters alike are paying attention to what the key issues will be at the voting booth and beyond. On the radar this year, crypto. A recent poll from the Crypto Council for Innovation, the organization where I serve as CEO, found that one in seven U.S. voters hold crypto, and the majority believe that crypto has unrealized potential. The same poll found that there's higher support for crypto among minorities and young people, key voting blocks this midterm season. So it's a contingent Washington is watching, and given how many races will be decided by a narrow margin, one that could have an impact on the way elections shake out this season. Why does it matter? Well, we think the choice matters. The data shows that those that have crypto will vote for candidates that they see as pro-crypto. The data also say that a majority are looking for more policy and regulatory clarity in the crypto ecosystem. This is important to voters because consumers do look for choice, being able to pick financial products that work best for them while being protected from fraud or bad actors. But as we discussed in past episodes of this show, the path to achieving this clarity is not as clear-cut as you might think. There's so much more to a bill becoming a law than the simple legislative steps we're taught in civics class in the United States, or in some cases via the schoolhouse rock song, I'm Just a Bill. It's in fact a complicated process of strategy negotiation and taking a long-term view of the future of industry. Legislators and their teams are tasked with balancing huge agendas and navigating a very complicated regulatory landscape all while staying attuned to the political realities that shift from moment to moment. Now, I'm certainly biased, but today we're unpacking all of this with two of the go-to people in Washington and all things crypto and politics, my colleague Brett Quick and Alex Sternhill. Brett is the head of government affairs for North America at the Crypto Council. Prior to that, she was the co-head of government affairs for Financial Services Forum after holding senior roles in Senate and House committees focused on financial services. Washington strategist Alex Sternhill has played a key role in drafting and negotiating nearly every major piece of financial services legislation before Congress in recent history, including Sarbanes-Oxley. Now the founder of Sternhill Group, 
He works on behalf of some of the world's largest companies and has been recognized by The Hill as one of Washington's top lobbyists. I'm really looking forward to diving into the ins and outs of this election legislative season with them and making sure that you all know fundamentally how important it is for so many reasons to get out there and make your voice heard by voting. But first, let's bring in my colleague, Michael Casey. Hey, Michael. Hello. So one thing I often think about with you, right, is you have lived in a number of different countries around the world. You've observed a lot of different elections and election cycles. You know, Australia, Argentina, as we've talked about, United States, right? And I often wonder, like, how do you view, like, this process is in some ways more organized and structured. In some ways, it's more chaotic. And I'm just kind of curious, like, what are your observations just on the U.S. and how America responds to elections as a general matter? What have you observed over over your time living here? Yeah. Yeah, good question. It's I, I wasn't expecting that one, but I can tell you, I find it exhausting. Like I yeah. just, like it doesn't. In Australia, yep. it would be every four years, and it was parliamentary. It, it, so you sort of never really thought about, and the parliamentary system, as much as it's supposed to be representative, you really were always voting for the party, and that was it. So it was a really simple equation. And of course, there's big issues either way, and you had to, you know, weigh it all in. It's become a little more complex in Australia, partly because of the power of independence that has emerged there in the parliamentary system. But just the sheer, not only the frequency, because you get the midterms, then you get the, you know, yep. the presidential and you get these off cycles, you know, mayoral votes that happen in New York. But then the different layers that you've got sort of all these different layers all happening at once from, you know, state legislatures to, to councils right through to, you know, you, you, you Congress people, your Senate and your, uh, and your president. And just it never seems to stop. And I find it on the one hand invigorating because it is a sign of a healthy democracy that, that this thing comes up for vote all the time. But on the other, just a bit exhausting, like, come on, can we just focus on governing rather than, than the politics of it all? As well as the fact that I think now in this, you know, rather disturbing environment where we're in a much more unhinged information environment, and I don't even need to cite necessarily the great conversations going on Twitter at the moment about certain events <laughs> this past week, it, it all feels like, wow, this is this is what we all we do is talk about the sides and the politics and the, the, the when do we actually make decisions and implement? That's mm-hmm. the thing. And, and that's why this conversation hopefully is going to be really constructive because I think on the one hand, you could argue for crypto, this is the most important election we've had. I mean, just because I feel like there's a lot of pending legislation out there and it will to some extent be dictated by what the landscape looks like on the Hill coming out of this. But as you laid out in your monologue, and I'm sure our guests will talk about, it's a lot more than that. It's this process of trying to battle it through and actually to get to the point of governing and implementing, you know, it's going to be really interesting to see going forward how it all works out. But there's there's a lot riding on all of this. And so, yeah, let's dive into it. Yeah. Well, you know, one thing I'll just say is I take some comfort that we're not alone in our crazy just looking at our friends across the pond in the UK. (laughs) You know, um, it's just it's a crazy time politically around the world. But yeah, let's get into it. One thing I've learned in this six months as as CEO of CCI is there is no time that the foot comes off the gas in Washington. Uh, And even though, you know, as you know, 10 years ago when I was paying a lot less attention to this stuff or differently paying attention to it, you you do kind of go from election cycle to election cycle. Most people pay attention to who they're going to vote for, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes before their local election, you know, a week before their state election and maybe like a month before the federal election. But for folks in Washington, it's a never ending process because, of course, people cycle in and out of the government. People take different roles and jobs. And, and the influencers are not necessarily always just the ones who are in office at any given time. So 
understanding the dynamics are, are really of critical importance. But, but Alex, let's start with you. Kind of what, what's your observation? You know, you, you've been around Washington for a while now. And have you seen an uptick in kind of just the, the chaos and the kind of drama around elections, right, over the past, I don't know, maybe a couple of decades? Or do you feel like it's always been a little bit nutty and it's just that now the public is more aware of that because of changes and things like social media, you know, et cetera? What's your take on that? Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. I have to tell you, you know, you're absolutely right. We, we are in a period of time where we haven't seen this kind of significant fervor, significant frenzy. The past few years, I think, are in many ways foundationally ground shaking. We had for the first time in a long time, uh, going back 25 years, a, a disputed election, followed by disturbing events that took place at the Capitol, followed by a pretty tumultuous change in Congress, including one of the narrow, most narrowly held Congresses we've ever had, a 50-50 Senate and a 10-vote margin in the House, incredibly divided government, despite the fact that, that the House, the Senate, uh, and the White House were all controlled by Democrats. We really haven't seen this kind of, uh, of narrow margins in, in a while. And on top of that, we've got a Supreme Court that's made some very significant decisions on, on the judicial side that have had a real impact on the way people feel about their government and what way they feel about uh, their country in general. Yeah. And Brett, I'd love to kind of understand, you know, how that affects strategy. So you've been full time in Washington for, for you know, not quite as long as Alex, but for sure some time here. And, and certainly there have been these shifts and changes. And now as you're transitioning, as you transition from sort of TradFi over into the crypto ecosystem, you know, how are you thinking about coalition? Because one thing we've, we've observed that our, our polls show, but also it's been really interesting and we say this a lot in the industry, but now we have data backing it up. This is really a nonpartisan issue. You know, it, it's not even a bipartisan issue. I mean, there's progressives, there's hardcore libertarians, you know, all of who see crypto as a critical issue for very different reasons. The reasons are actually consistent, funnily enough. And, and so what do you make of that? And how do you think about just coalition building in this kind of environment? Thanks, Sheila. And, and hi, Michael. Thank you both for having me. I think you sort of hit the nail on the head that crypto is a bipartisan issue. And as Alex sort of outlined, we have a 50-50 Senate. We have a House that's controlled uh, by the Democratic Party, but with a very narrow margin. And we've actually still been able to garner a tremendous amount of bipartisan support for a number of pieces of legislation in the crypto space that would have a huge impact on the industry. So as you kind of pointed out, Sheila, there are members of Congress, both in the House and the Senate, really from all points of the political spectrum that support these things. And, you know, the way we sort of talk about it is that with crypto, there's kind of something for everyone. So there's certainly the more traditional Republican view that we want to really foster innovation and create jobs. And, and we want to have a, maybe a lighter touch regulatory environment, but we want to have the clarity that's needed for the industry to grow and thrive. And then maybe the more sort of traditional Democratic view that we want to make sure we're establishing consumer protections and investor protections. And we have you know, appropriate oversight into the markets by the appropriate agencies. So we really sort of see some aligned, aligned incentives because of that. So it's been sort of a unique environment to build coalitions where you've had folks that are maybe traditionally on opposite sides of issues really kind of coming together uh, to try to, you know, really navigate the best policy for this space. So, so Alex, since you were just describing this, you know, divided state of Washington right now, um, you know, uniquely, as you were putting it, how do you locate what Brett was just talking about, right? This idea that crypto could actually be one of these rare areas that you can find bipartisan interest, interest in. I mean, is that realistic? And other, you know, Brett was talking about like she's selling one part of the story to, to one side, another to the other one. Does that work? 
how do you actually build coalition in this environment around a topic? And, and what happens if, in fact, the buy-in is actually for very different reasons? I, I want to know, you know, from a strategy perspective, how do you work with the environment we have and, and the kind of you know, almost differentiated arguments that Brett was alluding to? No, absolutely. And I, I think Brett framed it incredibly well. I think, you know, the best way to describe how you do it and the atmosphere is we've, we see it in Congress right now. There's real evidence that there are bipartisan bills on both the House and the Senate side. Members of Congress that really don't agree about much are agreeing on crypto. And that's, that's fantastic. It's a great foundation and a great start. Doesn't mean we don't have a lot of work to do, but it's incredibly important to recognize that, that many of the same goals are the same, even though some of the issue sets are, are, are different. So, for example, legislation introduced in the Senate by both the ranking member and the chairman of the committee, it's hard to imagine two members of Congress who are more politically different than, than Senator Sabinow or Senator Bozeman, and they have worked collaboratively together on legislation, legislation that still needs additional work that, that folks are in, involved with. But it really is the foundation for working together that I think is part and parcel to, uh, to getting appropriate, thoughtful, reasonable legislation that both promotes innovation as well as protects investors and consumers. I could just add to that. I was just going to say that, you know, I think it's important to keep in mind also that while there may be individual issues that are the primary motivations for certain members to support things and, and really want to be proactive on legislation, I think what's the most sort of significant piece of this is that you have really sort of broad acknowledgement that crypto is here to stay, that it's a part of our financial system and our, our digital future, as we say, at the Crypto Council. And you have folks from, again, you know, all points on the political spectrum really acknowledging that. So it's not just about, you know, individual motivations. I think it really is sort of a comprehensive view that a lot of these folks have because they're really recognizing that this is going to be a part of our financial system and that there are really tremendous opportunities associated with the technology. Yeah. And I think that's reflected in the Biden executive order, right, which really kind of landed you know, crypto is a, a critical component of the digital future of our future digital economy and creating and landing a more inclusive economy digitally is something that can probably be best achieved by you know, thinking and taking seriously this innovation space. One of the things I think that that is is unique about the approach that the two of you have taken throughout your careers is that and it shouldn't be unique, but you, you always start with what's the policy goal, right? And that's what we do at the council as well. It's like, what's the policy goal? And this is true if you're trying to talk to anybody about anything, if you're trying to get a new user to use crypto, leaving aside anything to do with politics or policy, the question is always, you know, what are your pain points? We talk a lot in the crypto industry about adoption. How do we engender more adoption? How do we get to more adoption? But the reality, a lot of that has been lip service historically. And, and Michael, I'm, you know, we've had, we've had this conversation on the pod before. As we get to that conversion where we say we now have to have it, call it mass market you know, availability, mass market usability, I think is critical. But when it comes to policy, we got to connect this opportunity with things that policymakers really historically have cared about, because this is a new space. It's a tiny piece of a much, much broader portfolio. And the only way to bring about a change in a policy agenda is an election, is to elect people that have a different policy goal. But people come to office with a set of policy goals. So maybe let's pivot a bit and talk about how do those goals get set up? We are a democracy. People are, in theory, accountable to their constituents, to the voters, that people that show up in their district. We'd like to think they're accountable to everybody, but certainly the slice of people they're most accountable to are those who are showing up to keep them in office or get them out of office. 
how do politicians and lawmakers generate their set of policy proposals? And we can talk through, you know, party platforms all the way to kind of individuals and what they decide to focus on. Sure. Thanks, Sheila. I'm, I'm happy to, to start with that. You know, you mentioned in your opening the Crypto Council's recent poll, and that poll found that I think 52% of voters think that there needs to be, you know, a regulatory framework really established for crypto. And that's a, that's a pretty significant finding, I think. Your question about, you know, how are some of these positions developed? I mean, it's incredibly driven by the constituencies of these members in, in their respective districts. There's a lot of variables that sort of go into that. There's, you know, questions about the lines that are drawn and, and how sort of Republican or Democratic leaning individual districts are. There's a lot of influence in that sense, but it really does sort of go back to the folks at home. You know, all politics are local, even though we're talking about, you know, members that are elected at the federal level, they really are, are driven by their constituencies and, and the calls that they receive into their congressional offices, the letters that they receive, which you can imagine it, it's a tremendous amount. And the town halls, you know, they spend a great deal of time going around their districts when they're not in, you know, DC work periods and hearing from folks. And that's really sort of how they develop where they are. So, you know, a lot of these issues can be very, can be very geographic, can be based on a lot of different, you know, sort of demographic variables that are, you know, in these individual districts. Brent just said it very well. I mean, I think that basic, you know, you have members of Congress that have certainly foundational basic ideology that come to Washington, tending to either be more conservative or more or more progressive. And you add on to that with a, a fundamental idea of what the role of government is supposed to be, particularly with an emerging technology like crypto. And then you add on to that exactly what Brett's describing, which is, you know, pure parochial interests, what people in their district who are voters and businesses who participate in their district, what they care about, I think are important. The, the major employers in those states help as well. And, and then you bring it to Washington and members of Congress develop areas of expertise, generally either from interest or from the committees that they sit on. And those expertise really ground the members using the basics that they brought from, the, from, from home into understanding exactly you know, the direction of policy that they believe is most appropriate. Let's keep going with this because I think this is the, this try, trying to get to this connection between you know the political wins, the needs of voters themselves, and and how politicians then respond to what they're hearing from people like you yourselves, also the industry. But on the other hand, thinking about what their voters want, it seems to me that you know this past couple of years we've witnessed both of those forces in really stark contrast. Right, we've definitely noticed and seen these legislators, and you've cited a couple of them who have come in and now are really digging down and co-sponsoring bills, et cetera, and really starting to understand it. But we've also seen, you know, some people who I thought might have been more crypto-friendly kind of really becoming more aggressively anti-so for what appears to be political motives, right? That there is a certain mindset out there, whether they are the sort of progressive left to parts of it, or in fact, also some sort of like very dismissive, um, you know, Republicans, maybe those connected to the banking sector and so forth, who really sort of taking a hard line against it. How do we manage that sort of external risk, right? You can manage the lawmakers, but there is, you know, this is public perception problem. And I think as much as, if I, in fact, I find it quite striking that we have seen such, you know, modest progress in Congress at the same time that we've had crypto winter and the exposure of the crypto bro and the not particularly positive way in which people have looked at NFTs, the, you know, the whole perception of the environmental damage, et cetera, et cetera. I just saw, you know, by the way, 
Boris Johnson is a keynote speaker at a crypto event in Singapore, which sounds like a really bad choice of keynote speaker right now, because of course the world's going to pile on and just show how stupid all that is, right? But that's just sort of like, how do we manage that? Because some of it's just really amorphous and difficult. And what role can Washington insiders play, not so much in managing the politicians, but sort of managing the message that emits from Washington to sort of bring voters on board? It's an education process that's really complicated, it would seem to me, because we are still at risk of things swinging back the other way. Both of you, I mean, Brett, maybe you you might have some thoughts. Sure. Michael, I think, you know, you said it there at the end that education is crucial. And that's a big part of what the Crypto Council does is educate lawmakers and stakeholders outside of Congress, the agencies on the benefits of crypto, on the need for regulatory clarity, on what's happening internationally. You know, the Crypto Council, as you know, is a global organization, and there are a lot of jurisdictions that are making a lot of headway on crypto regulation. So it's important for the United States to sort of keep up and not lose our innovative edge. You know, you mentioned the TradFi influence, and as a former banking lobbyist, I'll just touch on that a little bit. You know, for for the biggest banks, they don't have regulatory clarity to be in the crypto space at all. There have been extremely punitive proposals in terms of capital treatment uh, for banks that want to have crypto assets on their balance sheets. So they are right now pursuing a a posture that is really sort of anti-competitive, if you ask me, because they can't be in the space and they know that. I think once they achieve some sort of regulatory clarity on what they're able to do from a custody perspective as well, then then that dynamic may shift a little bit. But right now they they acknowledge that this will be extremely disruptive to their business models. And you know, there are a lot of folks that acknowledge that that fact uh, creates a tremendous opportunity for society. So they're they're concerned about that and they're they have, you know, rightfully so competitive concerns. But I think those will shift some once the regulatory environment changes, which you know we're all uh, working on for broadly for crypto. Near is a revolutionary yet simple Web3 platform for building decentralized apps. Designed by developers for developers, over 700 projects are now building on Near's fast, secure, and scalable protocol. Whether you're a crypto native launching DeFi apps, NFT marketplaces, and play-to-earn games, or looking to migrate your project from Web2, Near makes it easy to build Web3 for the masses. Near offers developers a variety of tools, resources, and support for building apps, empowering communities, and creating a more fair, inclusive, and equitable future. Start your Web3 developer journey now by visiting Near at near.org. That's N-E-A-R.org. You know, so one thing that really I find very interesting is, Alex, to go back to something you said, you said, you know, these folks develop expertise, and that's in part based on the committees that they sit on. So just walk us through a bit, you know, how committee assignments get decided, because that in and of itself is a bit, well, maybe not a bit, it's quite political, right? And it isn't always the case that you show up in Washington with your idea that you're going to be on judiciary and change the demographics of the judges. You know, next thing you know, you're on like, I don't know, something else, you're on help and you're like, I don't know what I mean. So how, how does that all get decided? And, and, and what should we be looking for, actually, if we go into the election and things do switch, majority minority parties, like how does that all get decided and play out? So believe it or not, it sounds like a pretty simple process. It's incredibly complex. It is intertwined with not only are there significant differences between the Senate, how the Senate works and how the House works, but also how Republicans and Democrats do their individual process. The caucuses are uh, are in charge of determining which 
members of Congress, both incoming members and incumbent members, get the committee assignments that they are assigned. And there is a massive amount of jockeying and advocacy for, quote, the better assignments, the better committee assignments. There are literally designations of committees as either super A, A, or B committees. And members of Congress are limited depending on ratios and depending on how many members of Congress there are in what committees they get and what they don't get. And and then additionally, there are more parochial issues. For example, generally in the Senate, you don't have two senators from the same state sitting on the same committee. So that has an impact, as well as, for example, states that have been traditionally represented on a committee that has a significant impact on their home state economy, like Senate Ag, for example, the states tend to hold a seat on the committee. So if a senator who is from a big ag state has sat on the ag committee for the past 20 some odd years and then retires and is then replaced, there's often a preference given to that to that senator for that a committee assignment. But it is very much a, a decision that is reached by party leadership and has a lot of different inputs and a lot of different moving parts. And sometimes it makes a ton of sense. And sometimes we'll never understand why decisions are made. And we just will go forth and, and figure it out later. I, I saw a piece today, and I can't remember where I saw it, unfortunately, but it was like, I think it was in one of the newsletters that comes through. Somebody talking about the prospect of crypto lobbyists, you know, the crypto industry essentially buying a seat, right? Like that they, they bring enough money to the table that eventually, you know, it's just overwhelmingly politically uh, influential to the point where they bought their guy and their guys, their man in Washington. And it struck me as a little naive. I, I just seemed to me that there's so many other issues at play. And um, as much as we all know that, yeah, big money buys and has a huge influence in our politics, that this industry is as, as deep pocketed as, as it has been in the past, you know, it isn't necessarily that able to really influence things. I mean, clearly, crypto money is, is and ha- has and will continue to play a role. There are certainly lots of efforts uh, amongst industry to fund different candidates and sort of get the voice out there through money. But how important actually is it in this process? Look, the role of money inside of uh, political campaigns is longstanding and was around long before crypto ever came around. You know, basically, there are both individuals and individuals that work at companies and the companies them- themselves who uh, are in the business of supporting candidates, who uh, are uh, supportive generally of the policies that they think support them both as individuals and as companies. Crypto is just an additional policy area in which there are going to be some members of Congress who naturally are strong supporters of and will be supported by folks on the outside who support their campaigns and support their efforts to legislate and regulate the technology. And can we just talk a little bit in general about Citizens United? So so when I was a charities, a philanthropy attorney, that's when that decision got decided, right? And so all of a sudden, I was a, I was a tax-exempt organization's uh, you know, outside counsel at a time when PACs just became a thing, right? All of a sudden, it was like the money just started flooding into. So maybe you can just frame out how the Citizens United decision, because I think a lot of our listeners probably aren't familiar with that decision. They don't remember it. It was long enough time ago. But it was a very profound moment in our electoral politics and in our democracy and in the ability of money as a general matter to influence politics. And so maybe, you know, I I don't know which one of you can just kind of talk about, well, maybe, Alex, it should be you, the shift that I assume you also saw 
within Washington at that time after that decision? And do you agree that it was kind of a really profound moment when we shifted the balance of power, I think, a little bit uh, away from the favor of of the average sort of voter and constituent, you know, towards uh, anybody with money? And that's that's, you know, there's a lot of people that have money. Right. So so kind of the balance there became disrupted by that decision, in my view. But I'm curious to get your view about that. Sure. I'd say a couple of things. Number one, I do feel uh, that the changes that were made in compa- uh, campaign finance have really had a profound impact on the members of Congress that are elected. It's it's absolutely true. What we saw prior was, I think, and while they still play a very major role, we saw a f- profound impact on the way uh, congressional committees or campaign committees are able to identify, select, and then support and ensure that the candidates that that that, that were chosen were going to get through their their primaries, particular primaries, and then head to the general. Often those candidates tended to be uh, candidates that had the best chance of success in the general and tended to be less polarized. And as we've seen uh, outside money uh, at a much less sort of discreet uh, way come in through a variety of private and PAC mechanisms, you're starting to see candidates that have the ability to both self-fund or, or fund from candidates from large pools of money that are not necessarily directed by individual congressional campaigns. That really has had an impact, I think, to some extent on the type of candidates we're getting in the general. I can only imagine that some of the, and we've seen public remarks from significant leaders on the Republican side uh, and on the Democratic side about their candidate selection uh, in this upcoming election. These, not all of these candidates that have made it to the general are the candidates that probably had the best chance to win in the general. And um, they may win anyway, but nevertheless, that's been a real shift in the way policymakers and uh, folks are elected in, in the United States. Yeah, it's so interesting because, of course, I have to go back to what the two of you also noted, which is regardless of who wins an election, there's so much more that goes into the influence that that individual will have within the Congress. And a lot of that is dependent upon committee assignment, right? Which you walked through how that is a very, it turns out like, just like with any job, you know, you, you, when you first get there and you're brand new, you probably have less ability to influence than someone who's been around for a while, right? And who kind of knows how, well, I guess the sausage is made in this case, it's kind of the literal, you know, knows how the sausage is made and has relationships and has a network and it's just kind of learning. And so, so with that, let's talk a little bit about what happens after an election, right? So there's a period of time, it's called the lame duck period for those who aren't familiar with the term where you kind of you know who the new folks are going to be, but they're not there yet. So you got this kind of senior I to see type of situation where everyone knows, you know, where they're going to college or whatever, they're still hanging out for their last semester, right? So so what normally happens during a lame duck session? And, and what should we expect, if anything, to be different about the one that's coming up for us uh, in another, oh, another week, actually? Brett? Some of it, you know, is dependent on the outcome of the election, as you can imagine. This is a midterm election, which is generally viewed as sort of a referendum on the incumbent party. Um, so in this case, on the Democratic Party, there is, you know, just based on historical data and trends, you know, I think that since 1978, the president's party has lost seats in at least one chamber with the exception of during a midterm election, with the exception of 2002, of course, coming off the heels of 9-11, when there was, you know, a lot of unity and, and patriotism. So, you know, Dependent on the outcome of the midterms, we'll sort of inform a little bit about what happens in the lame duck. But I think it's largely going to be the same. You know, after after the election, there's four weeks of session. 
Um, members will come back the week of the 14th and then they'll go for Thanksgiving and then they'll be back for three weeks. They have to fund the government. The continuing resolution, which is what the government is currently funded under, runs out on December 16th. So they'll have to, the goal is for them to do something called an omnibus uh, spending package, which they can do and they'll be working on. And, and I think the general sentiment right now is that probably three of the four corners plus the White House uh, support doing that, meaning the, the leadership in the Senate and Speaker Pelosi in the House. And I think it's sort of an open question about where Republicans are depending on you know what we see next week and what they're sort of anticipating for the following year. One thing to note, I think, is that if the Senate were to flip to Republican control, there would probably be a big push by Democrats in the Senate to clear a bunch of judicial appointments while they still have control. But outside of that, I think the agenda will largely be the same. There's sort of five things, I think, that are on the table. Of course, funding the government, the spending package, the omnibus. They need to do defense authorization. There is a bill to codify the Supreme Court's decision on marriage equality that has bipartisan support. I think 47 Republicans in the House voted for that. So they're going to try to move that. There's always tax extenders. So and then there's also a a bill on reforming the Electoral College. So there's there's five things sort of that are on the table. There's going to be a big push to try to get as much done as possible and sort of clear the decks before we go in to a new Congress. But that's sort of what we're kind of anticipating. There's not a ton of time to do it, but I think a lot of this will probably move. And I think the Omni is really what we need to watch as kind of the vehicle to take a lot of this. Everything Brett just said is absolutely on on point. I would just add one little wrinkle to this, which Brett knows well, which is we may be in a situation where we're starting the lame duck with an unclear uh, outcome of the United Mm -hmm. States Senate. And so Mm -hmm. it, it, it feels likely that at least Georgia could potentially go to a runoff uh, if no candidate gets 50% in, in the election in early November next week. And so we literally will be starting all the negotiations on all five of the things that she's describing with potentially a 50-49 Senate one way or the other with Georgia in doubt. And that also has an impact on the timing and what can get done. It generally doesn't mean that more things get done. It generally means that less things get done. But nevertheless, it's an important area. And I hate to say this, and it, it really does pain me to say this. We also have may have some additional contested elections that outside of Georgia that also could go on for a long time that might impact the balance of power as well. I'm glad you mentioned that. And the Georgia runoff, I think, is scheduled for December 6th. So I think that's 10 days before government funding runs out. So there will be a huge push in those 10 days, depending on the outcome of that if we get to that point. But that's absolutely certainly on the table, given how close everything is um, in the run up to next week. So I, I just I always find this so fascinating, right? Because we have this, I think, very fifth grade social studies sense. Well, those of us who, who grew up in the States went through educational system here, you know, that all of this is just kind of linear and like it plods along and there's like, this is how a bill becomes law and whatever, right? And what I have learned is that it's just so much more complicated, sometimes super messy. I think we can just own that it is not always complicated, doesn't necessarily mean messy, but in some cases, it really does mean very messy. There's a lot of nuance to a lot of this. And, and of course, the jockeying for some of the positions we we're talking about, all of that is going to start as well. But there's just a packed calendar of things that really need to get done that you just heard about that have to happen in that time period before the new Congress takes session. So let's talk a little bit about what happens when a new Congress does take session. So you have a mix of old folks and new folks. And, you know, 
do they get training? Like, how do you become, when you become a new congressperson, like what happens? Like, what is that? I'm just so curious. What does that look like? At what point in time are you actually equipped to sort of like start, you know, all the, all the optimistic things you got there to do, you know, when does that realistically start to happen? Yeah, you know, I think new members are sort of inundated with information and and sort of orientations. They will come, you know, the the new members of the House and the Senate will uh, be in Washington shortly after the elections. Leadership elections will take place. So they will be spending sort of the lame duck period, getting a little bit up to speed, get figuring out where their office is going to be and, and how things sort of work. The first couple of months of a new Congress are sort of occupied by organizing efforts and committee assignments and rules of the new Congress. So there's a lot of time that's sort of eaten up with that kind of administrative effort before you can really get into truly legislating, which I think is part of the reason why there is a big push at the end of this Congress to try to get, you know, some things done and over the finish line. I, you know, to Brett's comments, the real foundational shift that you're likely to see, not much is going to happen in the Senate in terms of party leadership. Not much is likely to happen in the House with some races, I'm sure that will occur. But the big fundamental shift is a, is, is a generational shift that's likely to occur, uh, that many believe is likely to occur in, in the House with Speaker Pelosi and uh, her team of the senior leadership folks, uh, Congressman Hoyer and Congressman uh, Clyburn, all of whom are at least to some accounts likely to either step away or change roles. You have a suite of new Democratic leaders that are significantly younger, that are that are poised to take over. That will mean not only sort of different leadership, but probably different styles and different focuses and attention and a lot of shifting roles for a lot of members of Congress on the House side, uh, on the Democratic side, uh, who haven't seen change at the top in a very, very long time. And so that's going to be all consuming for the first couple of months. Uh, as probably beyond for Democrats as they realign themselves with new leadership. So this has been a really good dive into the the workings, the sausage making, the details of of Washington. Uh, I actually want to step back and look at this from another level that is the meta sort of international level. And and just remember as well that as much as uh, I think the points you guys are making are really good that, you know, there's going to be a lot of hold up as we go through a lame duck and not much gets happening. So you have to wait, don't be impatient. However, uh, this year we've seen a, a war, uh, uh, you know, climate change really proving that it is an urgent, urgent problem. Uh, we've just had, um, you know, Bolsonaro removed in Brazil and now protests all the way there. And obviously some sort of possibly quite likely dispute of that election and uh, a major shakeup of one of the most important information social media uh, uh, platforms that we have that will inevitably in some way or form shape how information is processed, right? So there's a lot going on, not to mention inflation, you know, possible recession, bunch of stuff that could, I think, have all sorts of impacts on what happens in terms of crypto policymaking. And, you know, it's so good to hear all of these uh, positive, deliberative processes leading to more bipartisan understanding and et cetera. And it's all, it's all part of the hard work that lots of people do in Washington and so forth. However, again, political winds and political temperatures are just really important for these people. We did see this year the tornado cash uh, announcement come out, I'm sure, against all sorts of, you know, explanations and educational efforts from from the industry. And of course, a lot of that's happened afterwards. But there's, there's been some major policy missteps. And some of those may well be just quite deliberate policy steps. 
So I want to just, just we have to wrap up this soon. I just want to put in context a really interesting thread that one of the most uh, influential uh, you know, thinkers on Twitter, I'm, I think, from Crypto Made today, and we've had him on the show, Punk6529, a pseudonymous uh, you know, commentator around all things crypto and NFT. And he just laid out a scenario. He's a huge believer in crypto, but like a good kind of threat assessment kind of guy, as many crypto people are, he looked at the, the, the ease with which, in fact, an all-out ban on crypto could take place in the US, right? A, a kind of a worst-case scenario. And, and, and said, so, look, this could easily happen. And what, what, what happens if that, if that does? And how should we respond? And how everything kind of goes to zero if that's the case. And, and he ultimately you know, came to the conclusion, I think, that the best bulwark against it is, is just adoption. Just the more people for whom this stuff matters, the, the more a politician can't take these sorts of actions. Um, and, and it's really about real use cases, right? Not just sort of speculation and so forth. It seemed to me like, like almost like there's this race against time going on. And, and so, I mean, in the light of all of that, right, when you think about, you know, you guys can get a little bit like your narrow Washington focus going on. These are the steps. This is the lame duck. Da, 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 da. There's all of these other external forces at work. How do we balance this? I'm sorry. <laughs> Leaving on a, on a big picture question here. But like, I'd really like to just sort of like put this in context. There's a lot at stake here. So, Alex, if you want to just, you know, how, what is the best way for us to deal with this potentially existential risk? Easy question. Let me just you know, <laughs> handle it shortly. So I'm fairly sure I read the the thread that you're referencing. I think it was 25 tweets in a row. Yeah. I might have gotten lost at around 17 or 18. It's a very thoughtful piece. It's a very thoughtful thread. I will tell you that you know my firm belief is that a ban, while we need to be vigilant, while there there certainly should be focus and attention, and pieces like that remind us of what could happen rather quickly. I think we've reached the tipping point. I think we're past that. I think adoption, enough adoption has occurred. I think if you look at the Hill, legislators are talking about how to regulate it, not if we should regulate it or ban it. I think when you see progressives like Richie Torres, who's certainly no conservative, and conservative Republicans who are both talking about the potential for innovation and making sure that while that investors are protected, and consumers who are using crypto and payments, for example, are protected, the Hill is not talking about banning it. And that's a pervasive feeling. Um, so my initial comment to you is, it was, th- it was thought-provoking for me to see a, an executive order or the four steps that he laid out that basically banned crypto. I don't view it as a, a viable option, except I get very concerned about a catalyst, an event. I get very concerned, and he references those I do get concerned about things that are outside of the control of of what we normally think of as crypto. I was listening to you at the beginning talk through the macro, economic, and political uh, issues. I don't even think you mentioned Russia and Ukraine, which I think is you know is. I said a, I said a war. So a war. Was, okay, I, I, sorry, I missed, I missed the war. But there's so no much going on so much, that, yeah. that has an impact. That you know, I think it really is. There are catalysts out there that could focus the fact that there isn't regulatory clarity out there for crypto. And that's something we have to be vigilant about and work towards giving, you know, making sure that people understand the benefits and the risks associated with investing and using crypto. And I think we're headed that direction, but we certainly have more to do. Uh, that, was, that was a good, good thoughtful answer, Alex, because I think it was a, a, a big picture one that's often really hard to uh, 
the idea that we're there. Do you think, Brett, we are at a tipping point? Well, I think Alex said it really well. I think at this point, we have a very small minority of lawmakers in Congress that would support any sort of ban of crypto. And, and they're not even super vocal about that for the most part. And I mean, very small. And I think what's important to note is that that has changed tremendously in a pretty short time. And not just a support for a possible ban, but really just broad acknowledgement of the potential of the technology and the need to keep it in the United States and to try to harness the opportunity to really sort of transform our financial system. That's changed a lot really just in the past year, which I think is very unique for, for our industry. We've put a lot a lot into education efforts and really sort of establishing folks that really do, as Alex said, understand the benefits and understand the risks that need to be appropriately mitigated as with with anything. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because I, I also read that thread and I, I tweeted one of the one of the many tweets within it. I kind of you know put it out as well, because I think that adoption has to take two forms in my view. Right. Because I think what Punk was trying to say it's engagement too. So it's adoption. So the numbers are very clear. This is really highly relevant to the U.S. And I think, thank you for Brett. And I agree with this, that there has been sufficient demonstration of that, that that's now pretty landed. Always more adoption by more types of folks, you know, from, from more places. And this is true beyond just the United States, although we're talking about Washington today. But as a general matter, any government that sees its constituents its citizens using a particular thing is are not going to be in the business of trying to take that away from them unless they are historically an authoritarian government that wants doesn't want in any way to have you know any kind of other sort of uh, control happening right so so leaving those governments aside which I would call kind of lost cause governments in our view you know there anything that is kind of predicated on a democratic process is going to want to be responsive to what citizens are actually uh, using and, and indicating that is important. The way that you show that, of course, is in part by showing up. So voting becomes really important. So there are a lot of folks who own crypto who do not vote. And that is problematic in a different way, right? Uh, so it's it, it's not just having the demonstrated capacity that more and more people are going to be, be using this over time, which is really important. It's also demonstrating that those people also are connected to the democratic and political process and are showing up and are expressing the view that this is important as well, which I think matters too. So I'm going to have to wrap us here. But going into the election, again, there are, you know, crypto is one of many, 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 many reasons to vote. Uh, You vote because it is your civic responsibility as a United States citizen and somebody who is given the privilege to vote to do so. So I'm just going to be very blatant in my exhortation to everybody to, you know, participate in the process. Um, it is a complicated and messy process. I certainly have learned a tremendous amount in the past few months. Uh, but my view remains that it is important that we all try to make our voices heard. We have ways of doing that that are um, more productive than others. And voting and turning out to vote is certainly not one such. But love to thank. Uh, love the, the episode was super helpful. Thank you so much to Alex Sternhill, to Brett Quick. And of course to my global host, Michael Casey. And I really loved getting the, the sense from you just how, just really framing us out at the beginning with just how bananas some of the things we take for granted here in the US really are. Thanks to all who listen and come back next week for another episode of Money Reimagined. Bye everyone. You've been listening to Money Reimagined. Today's show has been produced and edited by Michelle Mousseau. Announcements by Adaby Levine, and her executive producer is Jared Schwartz. Our theme song is by Shepard. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. 
please reach out to us at podcast at coindesk.com, subject line, Money Reimagined, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. And from all of us at Coindesk and the Money Reimagined team, thanks for listening. Look around. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.